My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Post Credit Pod, where we're talking all things blockbuster entertainment. Today, after months and months, Tenet has finally arrived in theaters. We got time travel, we got time inversion, we got Robert Pattinson wearing crazy pretentious scarves. We got everything, basically. All the good stuff. So we thought with Tenet arriving, we might as well revisit five of Christopher Nolan's biggest movies to kind of suss out how we arrived at this point. Because as everybody knows, Christopher Nolan is a secret time-manipulating wizard from the future. That's just common knowledge. Now today, we are going to start with The Prestige, his 2006 movie about rival magicians. But before we get to that, I am in New York where movie theaters are not open. So I have yet to see Tenet. My wonderful co-host, Eric, just literally walk through the door after getting back from seeing Tenet in New Jersey. So why don't we start by giving our listeners a little immediate reaction. Eric, after all the damn drama over the last few months surrounding Tenet, what is the verdict? Brandon Katz, the time is 5.43 p.m. Friday, September 4th. I am sorry to report that Nolan has not saved film. Ooh, it, don't come near that. So I'm going to be as spoiler-free as I possibly can, um, which is hard because you don't even know the plot, do you? Right? I mean, as, as we discussed on our last pod, which everybody should check out, not even the actors in Tenet understood the plot. And I could see why, because it is borderline <laughs> ununderstandable. I don't know if that's a word. But but if that's not a plot, then we can use not a word. Right, exactly. So I'm doing my review now for Bro Bible. And I'm writing how, you know, no one is known for this sort of mind fuckery type stuff. Uh, right, right. And to his credit, that is what most of us enjoy about him. The fact that he's able to make a mega blockbuster film that also makes you think. Very hard to do, you know. Uh, it's why he gets a blank check to do what he wants. Now, but in those films, Memento, Inception, even to the point of a fault, whereas in Inception, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character almost exists entirely to explain what's going on. He is the exposition deliverer so in that's- a form. So Nolan at least knew that, look, this is all crazy. So I better have someone to explain what's going down. Because what he's really talking to in that movie is the audience. He's explaining it to us, not just the other characters. Exactly, exactly. And now, while it may be a little of an inelegant fix, it still gets the job done. You're able to understand what's going on. In Tenet, I was lost the entire time. I didn't understand. So Tenet, and this is not like a spoiler, Tenet is the act of the time travel-y stuff. It's called Tenet. All that like backward stuff, that's what Tenet is. It's the actual physics of the backwards-y stuff. Not at a single point did I understand how it worked or why it was such a problem. 
Uh, so he our, knows basically hand waves the explanation being like, these are the rules of the universe because I said so. At one point, one character, as she's explaining to John David Washington's character how it works, she says word for word, and I wrote it down, don't think about it, just feel it. Well, that may work for the character in the movie, but that doesn't work for me. That so, is so on the nose in the, ne- the most negative way possible for Nolan. So all of this backwards moving stuff, while it looks awesome and it takes up an entirety of the film, not at a single point do I understand how it works, how it came to be, why they need to stop it. They're pretty much trying to, you know, most action films have to do with our heroes trying to save the world. So it's no surprise that that's what what they're trying to do here. They're trying to save the world. You have just as good of an idea as I do as to what the hell Tenet has to do with any of that. Not only do I not understand the plot's main device, but I don't understand the characters at all. You never understand who they really are, how they got into this world, what they want. Outside of the vague, general, rooting direction where Nolan says, These are the good guys, and these are the bad guys. You don't know who's on whose side. You don't know who wants what. Nolan is so obsessed with moving the chess pieces backwards and upside down and forwards that he never takes the time to explain to you who the chess piece is and what it wants. So I, I love Interstellar. It's a movie that I like more and more every single time I watch it. Now, having said that, I fully acknowledge that its third act is so far up its own ass in trickery that it doesn't accomplish what it sets out to do. And this is, again, a movie that I absolutely love and think might honestly be a masterpiece. Now, is Tenet up its own ass too much, or is it simply too nonsensical to even find its own ass? So what I I wrote down here is, do you know the show us, don't tell us Tenet of (laughs) script writing? Guys, this, this, is, this is prime stuff over here, all right? Five-star that Apple review on that nice wordplay Eric just did. So, but you, you've heard yeah, that before, probably. right? So, for those who don't know, one of the core things that they teach you about when you want to write a script is show us, don't, don't tell us. Don't have Gordon Levitt literally explaining things. Show us. Nolan in this movie takes that too far. He only shows us and never tells us. While Interstellar is a bigger idea, I still found it more comprehensible than Tenet because he at least took the time to explain it. Regardless of how ridiculous that is, I understood that McConaughey was communicating with his daughter through all this sorts of time-space shit. Did I understand the ins and outs? No, but I understood the general plot. I can't tell you what John David Washington's character was trying to achieve other than the general, I'm the good guy, so I'm going to save the day. Do you explain why Tom Inversion is needed to save the world? Like, what is the threat, if you can get into that without spoiling? No, that's the problem. I don't understand. That that was my first point. I don't understand why Tenet is so crucial to saving the world. I, I don't. Now, it could be because I haven't seen a film in a while, so I was kind of in my own head. Uh, it could be that my note-taking skills are not what they were, and it's going to take a few weeks or months for them to come back. But I just felt this utter sense of not so much confusion, 
but just the fact that almost the carelessness on Nolan's part to just assume that because he gets it, we all would. It's too much. It sounds like it's too much hand waving where he's like, these are the rules because I say so. And I'm not putting in the script work to establish them in an organic way. I'm just using it as a stepping stone to get to whatever my next point is. Exactly. So one thing I wrote down is it's, this is less so a film and more of a cool idea and cool set pieces mashed in into one. There are no clear character uh, desires, goals, logic. It's just more of a, I had this cool idea about time going backwards and this studio just gave me $200 million to film it. So I'm just going to do a bunch of crazy shit. That's disappointing to hear because I I think some of the criticisms against Nolan, such as his inability to write female characters and uh, his occasional emotional... Which is odd because the... Uh, main female character in this is Elizabeth Debicki is the one that I understand what she wants the most. Well, that's that's nice if he's progressed in that department. But those are criticisms uh, that I genuinely agree with, and and I'm saying that as someone who loves Christopher Nolan overall, I think he's a phenomenal director. And it's particularly disappointing to hear that what I do think he's good at mixing multi layered and deep thought provoking thematics with blockbuster spectacle is what he fails at here. I'm sure the, the blockbuster spectacle is nice, and we'll get to that because I want to hear kind of about the engineering of this unique action. But to hear that the, the theme side in which he's very good at delivering statements on kind of humanity and personal contentment and navigating one's life, he's always been very competent in that regard. So to hear that he failed in that department is particularly disappointing on top of everything you've just said. Yeah, I mean, and this could sound hot takey, but, and again, I just saw it. I saw it at two. I just got home now. I think it's Nolan's worst film that I've seen. Um, I don't remember Insomnia enough. But the fact that that's even where I'm at, it says a lot. He's sort of, you know, boundary pushing, idea expanding, time warping has always been his thing. It's not that it's new. But this time, it seems like he more or less skipped the first act and just dropped you right in and said, shit's moving backwards, just deal with it. (laughs) So with the shit moving backwards, is this a unique visual action-centric blockbuster? Is the time inversion, unlike anything you've seen in a multiplex cinematic setting, and does it bring value to the movie, or are we talking one steaming pile of shit? Let's get let's get into the some positive, some negatives, if there are. So, as I'm saying, I you know, I put out a tweet that to me, more or less, this is this film's gimmick. The time in in version stuff, Nolan was so wrapped up, and sure, look, it looks cool, but the problem is that I was so consumed with not understanding how it worked or what it was for. That every time I saw it, I'm like, that would be cool, but I don't understand it. Visually, it's cool, but once your brain computes it, you're like, wait, I don't understand. Everyone's moving in every direction. It, 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 he was so focused on doing the gimmick that he wasn't focused enough on explaining it. And I know I feel like I'm saying that over and over again, but it just feels like Nolan was fixated on this idea of inverse time. And that gave him almost a tunnel vision 
in his brain, he was like, oh, this makes perfect sense to me. I get it. But he failed to take a breather and look at it from the point of view of a not genius director um, and say, hey, maybe I should, you know, explain a little bit further how exactly this tenet came to be, except for one, literally one brief scene in which the character says, don't don't think about it, just feel it. I mean, that, that's bad. Even as far as suspension of disbelief and Hollywood ex- explanations go, that's bad. Yeah, yeah. So, and, 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 that, was, and yeah, that was early too. I mean, I would have rather him broke the fourth wall, looked at me directly in, in, in the eyes and like showed me a spreadsheet of how it would have worked. Like, all right, time out people. I'm going to explain to you how tenant works. Then we'll, we'll go on. That would have been better. If he ever wants to do a comedy, he should back pocket that idea. <laughs> now, this strikes me as something that you may need to see more than once. Uh, I have a long-standing saying that if I've seen something once, I haven't really seen it. And that is probably especially true with this. But I'm going to have to read up tonight to even remotely try. Like, you know how all Nolan films have that cut-to-black ending that's, like, supposed to make you go, like, whoa. Yeah. All right, it did that, but I didn't understand the woe at all. At all. I was just sat there like a dumbass, like, uh, all right, all right, I guess it's over now, and just left. It's like being the dumb kid in a smart group of friends where, like, your AP physics teacher drops some huge bomb, and everyone's like, whoa, and you're like, I have no idea what exactly, you just said. Exactly. He got it. He got the twist, and the uh, theater was just me and one dude. And I wanted to ask him. I, I didn't because I bailed the fuck out of there. But I was like, I wanted to ask him, like, bro, did you understand any of that? Because that's how I, le- I, I left feeling. Now, I would, I'm would i dying to hear what you are going to say when you see it because you have more of a critical brain than I do. You sort of know the ins and outs of films more than me. So you could maybe dissect it better than I can. But if I represent the average fan on this pod, I can promise you that I would say 70% of fans are going to leave Tenet saying, what the fuck did I just say? And not in a good way, in a confused way. So before we switch to something that's actually good, Nolan, which is the prestige, last question about Tenet right now. It has a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, 83% audience score. Over his 10-film career prior to Tenet, Christopher Nolan movies averaged 86% on the tomato meter. What do you think about those scores? Fair, too generous, too harsh? I think it's definitely fair for it to be 12 points worse than his benchmark. If his benchmark is an 85 or 6, and this is a... 74, I think that's fair. I think a 70 is still fair because if I could wrap my head around the plot, then I think I would thoroughly enjoy it. It looks great. It's obviously slick. He has, you know, I've long said that the one thing that I don't like about the first two Dark Knight films is the fight scenes, uh, particularly the hand-to-hand combat scenes, are very disjointed and overcut and really not all that great that's not the case in this the set pieces are awesome but again when you're spending the whole time thinking about how much you don't understand the 
action you're seeing unfold in front of you, the action itself fails to hit home. It, it was okay, hollow. I lied before. This is my last question. Upon a second viewing, how significantly do you think your opinion of the film could improve? Yes. Great, great question. So I think if it is, so let's use that 74 score now, right? And let's say that I give it that same score. A second viewing could bring me up to his average 85. That's a big bump. Yeah, for sure. My biggest problem with the film is that I don't understand it. It's not the writing. It's, well, no, it is, it is the writing. writing. <laughs> Sorry, it's not dialogue. It's not set pieces. It's not pacing. It, it, it's a brisk movie. It doesn't feel like you're in there for two and a half hours. Uh, but it's plotting and its main plot device, Tenant, its plot is so incoherent that everything that would be good about it is rendered ineffective because you're so consumed with trying to figure out, just trying to get your bearings. Uh, but so I do think, but, but I do think if I were to see it again and understand it, yeah, we could be talking 85 ish for sure. All right. So there's still upside to be had, but overall really disappointing first reaction. Like, I, it's, like, it's like, it's like, it's like, do you know how when you go see a film, you Google uh, birds of prey ending explained, right? Yeah. It would almost be better to do that before you went to see Tenet to, to, to read up what it's, I mean, I'm not saying that you should do that because that would spoil the plot, but can a plot be spoiled if you don't understand it? You know what I mean? That so very fact is an indictment of the movie's quality and a failure in storytelling to me, hearing that. For sure. For sure. So well, that's, you know. that's disappointing. You know, the pandemic was already a depressing time, and you just uh, popped my last bubble of hope, Eric. So well, we and we talked about this. I'm sorry, Brandon, but we talked about this, and I would say that this is more than their fault. We talked about how uh, you know they kept pushing it back and building it up as this cinematic event that they set the bar so high that there is almost a built-in feeling of letdown, regardless of how good it was. It certainly doesn't help that I didn't think it was all that good. Um, I will say that I'm excited to see it again. I don't know if I'll see it in theaters, but I do think that my score is going to change when I see it twice, for sure. That is very fair. And for more on Tenet from Eric, go check out Bro Bible. I will be covering it eventually when I see it. But in the meantime, we have an entire series on Nolan's obsession with time on Observer. Go check that out. All right. Well, I guess all things considered, not going to lie, pretty disappointed to hear your initial negative reactions to Tenet. I, of course, got to see it. So we at least can argue a little bit about it down the line. Uh, now, before we move on to more Nolan and kind of jump, jump into the ins and outs of the prestige, let's talk about another hugely popular, potentially divisive, at least if you're talking to this guy, superhero kind of blockbuster production, and that is season two of The Boys, which hit Amazon this weekend, at least the first three episodes. Now, this is a show that just blew everybody away in season one, and the reviews have been almost universally positive for season two. Except if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, the only negative review on there for season two is by yours truly, Brandon Katz, for <laughs> The Observer. 
Uh, I will say my review featured a ton of positives about the, uh, the show and, and listed many things that I did like about it, but ultimately said it wasn't quite as amazing and subversive as it likes to think it is. I mean, Eric, am I, am I crazy? I just don't love this show. I don't really see why people are losing their friggin' minds over what is an entertaining but flawed series. Well, let's lay down the groundwork first. It's key to know that you've seen the whole season while yeah, I've not seen... not spoiling anything for any listeners. Don't right. I've seen the first four, and they've only dropped the first three. So we're only going to really be talking about the first three, which dropped. So today's Tuesday. There's been plenty of time, time to watch. I think what I like about The Boys is that it makes – it turns a – genre that could be overplayed a lot we talk about that a lot in regards to the mcu how it could feel a lot of the same over and over again the way that these guys uh the voight seven or vaught whatever i just think of john voight every time i see or hear the name brought up um kind of want to make the show now just to linger ominously in the background yeah 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 um he could be the Founder of Voight. You like that? I like that. Boom. Why Amazon hit us up. Free idea. Uh, um, so these guys aren't even anti-heroes. They're the bad guys. Straight up. I mean, Homelander is an absolute. And I think that whoever the guy plays him, Anthony I think Star. Anthony Starr. This Great dude. Star. Yeah. He's, he is as insane as an on-screen. Like, he's up there with. You know, when Bale was in American Psycho with just radiates pure psychotic energy, man. Um, so I really like the change of pace in terms of you're rooting for them to lose, perhaps for the first time ever, which is nice. Furthermore, I like the fact that you can sort of relate to being the boys. In most of these films and shows, you know, they have to build in a whole character as like a sort of avatar for us so we could relate to what's going on. Yeah, you're an audience surrogate in that sense. In the case of the boys, we are the, the main character. The surrogates are the main team, the good guys. And then, of course, there's all the blood, the gore. Uh, the, really? I hadn't noticed. Right, exactly. Well, and I'm sure that that's your snobby critic brain is probably what, it not, what you don't like about it, right? Well, listen, is it too much for you? I agree that the homogenized and overly flavorless superhero genre needs an, needs an infusion of newness, uh, of life, of doing things in a different manner. I just don't think The Boys is nearly as subversive as it thinks it is. I enjoy a lot of the episodes you just said. I, I really, really do, Eric. And I think it's very often extremely fun and very often extremely different from the avalanche of vanilla sameness that we get between the MCU, the DCU, the Arrowverse, a million friggin' animated shows. It's great to have some newness and I enjoy it. And I'm not saying that this is like an F minus series, but you know, season two, it's like taking shots at Zack Snyder, making meta jokes about Seth Rogen, who is an executive producer of the show in real life. I'm like, okay, you're really only half a degree removed from Deadpool. You are poking fun while falling into the same trap that you claim to be above. And that's fine. I can see you know that. what? Because it's really hard to write that, that well. But let's just not proclaim yourself as the Shakespeare meets Stan Lee of superhero content when, you know, you're not quite at that level. It does also revel in its grotesque cruelty 
more than even like a Game of Thrones. Like you're, it takes pleasure in its pain. You're like saying you you can't at once both be the king and the court jester. Like they they oh. can't they can't act like they're above it all, but then profit on that very same repetitiveness cliche that they take aim at in the show. Exactly. And I do think we find a lot of the sameness with our heroes, with a guy like Huey, with Billy the Butcher, who have very traditional conventional arcs in terms of like a new age hero's journey. The best content is absolutely with the bad guy superheroes and the kind of commodification of superheroes as mass marketed products rather than idols and aspirational heroes. Well, I think that that's, and and then to just go back to what we do like, I think that the way that they tackle the, and again, it's a product of the very thing that it's trying to take down, but the way that it really makes clear the way that superheroism, if it was real, it would be capitalized the fuck out of. It would be business, (laughs) it would be nasty, and they nail that. And we really- Voight isn't just a Disney (laughs) stand-in? I mean, yeah. Yeah, so exactly, exactly, exactly. And I never really, you know, they don't, Batman never needs to deal with selling Batman toys, you know, right. but, that, but that would be a real thing. Uh, his yeah, image, yeah, so that's all well and fine. But I will say that what I think season two lacks that season one had going for it is the sort of surprise factor where as season one co- sort of caught you off guard, you know, it, it, it's based on how different and violent and like so, sub, or, you know, seemingly subversive that it was. It's based on I, IP. So yeah. some people knew about it, but it wasn't a big name. Now, now it is. I'm sure sales for the books have spiked. So what they had had going for it the first time was that it was surprising. This time, those same shocking moments, people exploding, them saying the F word a lot, you know, uh, heroes being nut jobs. All that shit is not really hitting as hard this time around just because we've seen it and a lot of the beats are sort of the same. Like you could almost, you've seen seen them all. I haven't, but you could already see the arc. You know, it's going to be, I could predict it's going to be similar to season one. Um, I will say, and this is not a spoiler, but I will say that the back half of season two, I enjoyed more than the front Oh, half. great. Okay. Okay. Cause, I, cause, why? So the point is, even if it is stale or not as uh, hard hitting as it was the first time, it's still such a fun show that I don't mind. If you're giving me something of this, if you're giving me candy that I enjoy, even if it's the same candy, it's still sweet. Um, yeah, so Rotten Tomatoes counted my review as negative, whereas I was kind of feeling it more of like, hey, this is like a B minus fun slashery type extravaganza you know it didn't I wasn't necessarily saying you know this show sucks don't watch it and I mean they definitely have faith in in the show because it's been greenlit for season three so so it's got like a 90 I mean outside of you being being a Grinch it's got what a 95 percent 96 percent the power has gone to my head I am (laughs) drunk with corrupt totalitarian ability. <laughs> I mean, look, man, I do respect, like I totally kind of hear what you're saying, but I guess my past point will be my last point in that even if it is sort of falling victim to the very things that it makes fun of, I still enjoy that. It's still fun as hell. It's still, 
in comparison to what else we have inside this genre, very different. Um, and so as long as they don't jump the shark, which I could see them doing in a show like this, uh, I'm on board. Just kind of sticking with the in-universe rules of the boys, the superheroes themselves star in like movies and TV shows and, and products like about themselves. And now all I want in like the real world with a real Batman is the real Batman starring in a Batman movie about Batman. Oh, I didn't, I see, I didn't even realize that they're playing themselves in those, in those films. That's yeah, so... which is just the most like hilarious over, <laughs> purposely overall. Like that is the joke. I get that. And that's, that's what's funny about it. Yeah, how yeah. It is. But now I just can't imagine like Bruce Wayne putting up with this shit. Like, cut! We gotta take it from the top. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's why. So, so. But that's why I enjoy it. It takes a look at the business of being a superhero more than we've seen, and in today's world, that's a very big part of what it would be. Yeah, that's where it's at its best, especially as we get into the kind of conversation of superheroes and the national defense and everything. When it switches to the heroes and when it tries to do some real life parallels is I think where it stumbles most, but yeah, I mean, Hey, I'll just write another bad review for the next one. So I can be the sole arbiter of taste in the world. All right. Well, on that note, let's switch it over. Tenet is out. We've talked about it. It's really making us want to kind of revisit Nolan's filmography to pick out the tricks and turns and twists and tools that he's developed to become the director he is now. So to start off, we rewatch The Prestige. Shoot me. Come on. No, I can't shoot it. How'd you like that? How'd you do it? Magic. I'll perform this feat in a manner never before seen by yourselves or any other audience anywhere in the world. Audience loved it. This trip is top notch. You need to celebrate. <laughs> A real magician tries to invent something new. It's something that other magicians will scratch their heads over. I suppose you have such a trick. Yes, you do. It's the one they're going to remember me for. And Eric, this is a movie the first time I saw it, caught it with my dad, came out in 2006. We really enjoyed it, thought it was a page turner of a movie, and spent about an hour afterwards, you know, sifting through the various reveals and mysteries to try to make sense of it for our own in an engaged, fun, entertaining way. Not really a frustrated, we don't understand what the hell just happened kind of way. Watching it again years later, and I've seen it, of course, several times in the interim, I still felt that same thrill that this is a expertly constructed puzzle piece that you know what on the 15th rewatch or whatever it is actually might play even better than the first time yeah and i think that that's sort of what i'm holding against tenet is the fact that i saw this so in 2006 i was 13 right and when interstellar came out in 2014 or 2015 um you know it's about black holes and stuff and time travel, and it still made more sense to me than Tenet. So the fact that a 13-year-old me understood the prestige more than 27-year-old me got Tenet speaks volumes to me. That's bad. That's a harsh indictment. Yeah, yeah. But I do, but uh, just to jump on this quick, in the days since I've seen it, 
I've been thinking about it and I've been wanting to see it again so I could hopefully like get in on the joke as it were. Not that it's a joke, but so just so I could understand what the fuck is going on. Nolan's a barrel of ass. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> you, you don't crack up every time domestic terrorism pops up. In <laughs> you brought this up on the last part. I think that's a great point. It exists in this space right before he really sort of blew up between like indie and like A-list mainstream. Um, and he'll ne- and he'll probably never go back to that place. That's sad. That's a sad thought. Yeah. So watching this, I think I enjoyed what you enjoyed much. How simple it is in terms of Nolan and where he's gone since, but how complex it is in terms of the actual plot. It's so funny to use the word simple with Nolan, and yet I know exactly what you mean as a pre-Dark Knight thinker. Or just, dude, Interstellar, Tenant. I mean, now he's dealing with, with stuff that's, that is, you need a scientist to explain to you. Like, I wish we, we could just go back to the world of, like, magic and trapdoors and stuff like that. Um, it's just, it, it, it's like a, like, do you know how it's cool to say that you knew a band before they blew up? Oh, yeah, hipster status. So this was his last album before he blew up, you know? Oh man, Nolan went so mainstream. So, and there's always enough. and there, exactly. So there's always going to be something great about that. Um, and I think that this film will probably age as well as most of his stuff does because it's timeless. It's set in what eighteen ninety something, um, which is so funny too. Because I- I'm not saying you know a great magic Vegas act isn't cool today, but back then, especially when you said the prestige and its focus on scale. It's the 1800s. Everyone's like, whoa, this new magic act. You've got to <laughs> I know, it. I know. This is their Star Wars and Game of Thrones and Marvel. You right, know? right. This is, yeah, this is what they've got. Magic. This is the only thing where the curtain can raise and the audience immediately is like, <laughs> Whereas like everybody today, we're just like, eh, eh, you know, whatever. So I think it's going to age well in that sense. Uh, it has two stars that I think are going to endure for another 20 years. And that's not yeah. counting Charjo, presumably. Right, right. Who's very, very good in this movie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I just think that there's so much to love about this that Nolan still does, but now it's on such a grandiose scale that seeing it, like you could almost feel like it was built with his hands and not some computer and scientist, you know? Like it just feels ground. It, it, it's a, it is the... <laughs> It's the gritty Nolan film. Like, of Nolan films, it's the grounded, gritty Nolan film. I, as, uh, as meta of a joke as that is, I know exactly what you are saying, and I actually agree with you, because we talk about what Nolan has become, and that's really kind of dark night to now, the last 12 years, where he has been firmly, undoubtedly a blockbuster, the blockbuster filmmaker, especially when it came to original concepts. But here we have all of his favorite tricks and tools. We've got nonlinear narratives. We've got mindfuck reveals. We've got splashy mystery boxes that are kind of very tightly guarded that the audience has to figure out. Even though this isn't a blockbuster with $100 million set pieces, I still kind of feel like this is the most Nolan-y movie of Nolan's career. Does that make sense? No, I mean, really no. Yes, it, it makes sense, but I don't- That's ag- the pot, everybody. Have a good day. <laughs> 
It makes sense, but I don't agree because of what I just said. It is. It was the most Nolan-y of the Nolan films back then, but because of what he's become since, as you said before, blockbuster auteur of cinema. Like he's like this. You know, he's known for event films and massive set pieces and plots that melt your fucking brain. Now he's known for that, for being this on a scale unto himself. But in terms of all the things that he was known for when he first started to blow up, all the stuff that you said, screwing with the timelines and mind fucks and that sort of cut to black ending that he just loves so much. Where, you know, he gets that last line in and then he drops the sound, drops, drops the picture. Um, so it, it, it is both and it is and both is not the most Nolan-y Nolan film yet. I go back and forth, back and forth on it. This is a conversation that I have with friends and, and family who are deep in the film as well. I can't decide which Nolan I like more. The more restrained and focused memento insomnia prestige nolan or the uh blockbuster auteur who matches you know tentpole spectacle with layered thematics you know dark knight inception interstellar tenet i i love both overall even though i haven't seen tenet i probably will be having some opinions on that but i just go back and forth i can't tell if i had to choose between the two which one i would choose well which one counts as the dark knight Dark Knight's blockbuster. Come on now. But what? All right. So then, what about Bat- Batman Begins? Batman Begins also falls into the blockbuster category, even if it's you know box office totals might not have necessarily qualified in a modern sense. That so then was you got to take those commercial property. You got to take those because you just you, you just can't get rid of the Dark Knight. Yeah, well, I mean, you're the least, you know, objective person possible if it comes to a bad That's fair, but I'm not the only one who, like, reveres The Dark Knight as an all-time great film. Well, I do as well. There's no question is best. I I still think The Prestige is his best film. Although The Dark Knight Knight is the one that's going to be on his tombstone, you know? That's the one he's remembered for. I don't doubt or argue that in the slightest. Right. So, I mean, wow. So, all right, so then this is going to be fun if you think it's his goat then. So before we jump into all the categories, the title of prestige, as they explain in the film like a thousand fucking times, it refers to the moment in a magic trick that provides the wow factor, the big reveal. Is the film's final reveal, this is spoiler alert for a 14-year-old movie, so if you haven't seen it, I mean, you know, get on it, guys. Is that the double Borden, Christian Bale's character has been using all along, is actually his twin, which is basically said in the first like 30 minutes of the movie and dismissed offhandedly. Is that too simplistic of a reveal for a prestige or do you think it's brilliantly subtle? Because this is, this is a common complaint that I've run into in terms of some critics and some everyday average fans. That so I've talked you, about. You, you sound like you have a take on this. I, I have a take on everything, Eric. That's why uh, right. I have my podcast. Welcome to it. Well, us. so this is my rewind that real quick, the ending. So should we, do you want to get into it now or save it for then? I guess let's save it for the category. Okay, okay. okay. And I will say just quickly before we jump into that, I think subtlety can be used like a blade if it's, you know, pinpointed with accuracy. And I think this is an example where 
underselling it actually works remarkably well. And I cannot wait for us to discuss it later. I agree. Cause one thing I wrote down is hiding in plain sight is dope. If really? you pull it off, it's dope. I, it, I'm more mind blown. The fact that something was in my face the whole time and I didn't see it. That is magic to me. So. Also, that just reminds me completely unrelated, but hiding in plain sight. Why didn't like one of Voldemort's followers just go kill Harry when he was like nine with the Dursleys? They knew that he was with them. They knew that there was the only living family. He was completely unprotected and had no defense capabilities. Like hiding in plain sight. Why? I don't understand why they didn't kill him then instead of when he started becoming a badass. I don't know, man. JK has been uh, she's canceled, right? She's yeah. canceled. So I don't even know what's going. On. Because she she's a shitty writer. Then how's that sound? <laughs> Hot take, you heard it here first, post-credit pod. I'm just kidding. I, I have read the first five books, though. My mom was super proud of me. I remember when I was in third grade, I read the third one in, like, one day. And she would tell she would tell a bunch of people, like, my son read the, the fifth Potter book. And she would, like, you know, show how big it was in one sitting. And Miller, uh, claim to fame, man. I've since switched from, from books to film, so... <laughs> Shoot, books are good, man. We're, we're going to have to do a book pod one of these days. Yeah, okay. First, I've got to read said book. <laughs> All right. For those who followed us when we did our big DCEU deep dive, you know we like breaking things down into very special categories that help us really kind of dig into the meat and potatoes of movies. And what I mean by that is analyze them critically and also joke the fuck about them. So for our first one, this is just, oh God, it just runs through the entire movie. I want to give out an award to the worst disguise because not a single disguise in this movie, which features two professional magicians obsessed with one-upping each other and, and sabotaging each other, not a single one of them is even remotely convincing at all, at any time. And these are professional magicians, one of which is dealing with supernatural technology. So my award for the worst disguise in the, the movie has to absolutely go to Fallon. And for oh, those who don't know, Fallon is the guy who is always standing behind Christian Bale's character, Borden, in every scene and just looks exactly like Christian Bale with a little bit more weight put on. And every single scene, he doesn't talk. You just see kind of Christian Bale whisper a little bit. And then at the end, <laughs> spoiler, that's his twin. And they and just they, they, they don't give you a good look of him until the end. It's always like quick shots, quick cuts. But if you even pause for one moment and look at those quick cuts, he looks exactly like Christian Bale. Yeah. And it's like so funny because his wife, played by Rebecca Hall, would be like, this is like three quarters of the way in the movie. She's like, I know what you are. I know your secret. I'm like, duh, you know. Look at that motherfucker. He looks exactly like your husband. You probably figured that out the first damn day you dated him. She was saying that, like, in terms of she knows that he has a twin and, and that they trade off, or just that he has a twin? The former. I, I think that she knows not only that he has a twin, but they also share the same life. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so that one, I mean, look, of course. And I knew you, you were going to pick that one. So I had to dig a little deeper. And I'm going with, uh, what is the great Danton's real name when he's not the great Dan Danton? Do you know? Uh, Angier, right? Right. When he shoots off Borden's hand and he's just kind of wearing like a long scraggly wig, bro, Jackman is what, six foot three? Like, you're telling, Borden I is. I brought that up because that's going to play into a question that we have later. Borden is, Borden is not 
putting on a big show. It's in like some pub. There's like 20 people there. <laughs> this is like open mic night of 1800s magic. Yes, and he hands a pistol to this gigantic 6'3 man and doesn't doesn't catch the fact that oh man, that that looks like Angier. Ridiculous. Yes. Uh because so yeah, that's mine. <laughs> so for such an intricately woven film, I do think it's unintentionally hilarious how bad the disguises are. And I do think it is very important to point that out. It is. All right, but both of these guys are phenomenal in the movie, in my opinion. And you can really choose whoever you want here, but who's the real MVP of The Prestige? A movie that across the board is very well cast and well executed in what is otherwise a very complicated story to unfurl. All right, I'm going to need you to go first because I've got a post-cred pod record of seven here. (laughs) Seven? Okay, for those who don't know, every time we do categories, I come up with like one or two max answers. It's just for this one, though. It's just for this one. It's just for this one. All right, then I would say my MVP here is Michael Caine. Every magic trick consists of three parts or acts. first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it into something extraordinary. But you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. Now, Michael Caine has become one of Christopher Nolan's muses. He's in all of his films, you know, in the latter half of his career, in some sort of supporting role. I think you could make a case that his best Nolan performance comes here, in which he is a guide, a mentor, a voice of reason, a fellow saboteur, someone who who also recognizes his own obsession, but is kind of strong enough to throw it off in one of the best lines of the movie. Obsession is a young man's game which I absolutely love and quote to my brother all the time. So I think Michael Caine is MVP here. And you know what? When when is it a bad idea to throw out Michael Caine as an MVP? Like, has that ever backfired on somebody? Well, no, because he's on my list as well, but not him, his beard. Great look. Great look for him. Answer. So, I mean, look, it just, it not, I mean, look, he's looked the same age for my whole life, really, but the beard just makes him look even more, Distinguished? Gravitas <laughs> is just everything right. off this man. So that's one of mine. Next. A standard nine to five job that doesn't turn you into a nut job. <laughs> just a good old punch in, punch out, go home, eat dinner, wife and kids gig. Sounds like pound nice. for pound, who is happier? Borden or like the dock worker he passes in scene two? <laughs> exactly. The dock worker, because at least at least he's like not in this never-ending war with his old colleague. (laughs) Like, legitimately psycho shit. All right, next one. Electricity. Dope. Big time. (laughs) Dope. I mean, he shows up to that town. uh, What is Colorado Springs? And he's like, the whole town is lit? (laughs) Could you imagine? (laughs) Um, Late 1800s fits. I love their looks. The clothes. Real solid fashion. Like, I kind of want to bring it back. Yeah, just you always look like, regardless of if you're going to work or going to the pub, or you always look clean. 
not yeah. clean, not clean. No, you look dirty, but the clothes, but the clothes yeah, are nice. Very, at least the upper class did. Uh, this one, I think she, I, I think she's named every time she's in a film that we talk about, and that is Scarlett Johansson, just because. Really good in this. Rebecca Hall, who plays his wife, is really good. The actress, who the name escapes me at the moment, but she's in Coyote Ugly, and she plays. Uh, oh, it's crazy name Piper something. Hi, yes, Piper something. She she's very good in this. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yes, oh, indeed, Piper something. I, I just apologize. I can't remember remember her. It's last like Piper Paribo or something. something she's yeah. good, but Scarlet's the queen. Uh, and now I'm down to my last two, and these are my like real two. Tesla, what a lad. Oh, I mean, I, just the best, man. Put respect on his name. People don't forget. And now lastly, Hugh Jackman. I said it on, on our past pod. What can't this guy do? Nothing. Tell me. He could sing, dance, drama, superhero, comedy, this, which is sort of like, I guess, drama. But he is incredible. The greatest human, man. I don't know how he doesn't have an Academy Award yet. Um, I think it's going to come at some point. He just needs that right role because he's – I feel like when we look back on this guy's career, like he doesn't get brought up in those A-listers. You know what I mean? Like you think of Leo and Brad Pitt and uh, Matt Damon and Bale even. I feel like his name is not as brought up as much as it should be. If we were putting together like a hierarchy power structure, he would probably be on a lower tier tier than those guys. Unfairly so, I would say. And that's my point. He needs to be in that top class. This man, there is, I mean, if you look at his run, he's in the prestige X-Men uh, prisoners, which is, he is so dark in that. Um, Logan, the greatest showman. He hosts the Oscars. This man is, I watched this and my thought was, cause back then, you know, I feel like Bale always gets the press for just being Bale. You know, he's got his whole rep of, you know, being a prick, but being an artist type thing, <laughs> quote unquote, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, he's a prick, but he can be because he does. our oh, fuck that. Jackman also seems super nice. <laughs> so, so we just need to get this man his legacy lifetime Oscar role. Listen, this, this doesn't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things. You know what? Actually, it does. I'm sorry, it does. But in Hollywood, it's such like a kind of non-tangible thing. But he's also been married to the same woman woman for like 20 years, Hugh Jackman. I'm just like, you're the fucking man, Hugh Jackman. I love Stand-up guy, yeah. So, he, so it, he's so my- Is the post-credit re- podcast right now endorsing, endorsing Hugh Jackman as the bro crush of 2020? Because I'm fine with that. <laughs> I like that, yeah. He, he's the one person I can guarantee you that nobody out there is like, man, fuck you, Jackman. <laughs> like, I can't, I've never met that person. Except Cox and Scrubs. Other than that, absolutely <laughs> nobody. And they only chose him because he's such a nice, talented, awesome guy that it was a perfect fit. Yeah, so he's mine respect I think that's a good one man thank you all right now this next one is kind of a holdover from the dceu pods and i think it's still fair to bring it back and this is the jared leto award for the worst performance in this movie now to me there is simply only one answer and for those that have seen the prestige you already know the worst performance goes to knots ah i was gonna say i don't have any i don't have any <laughs> Everybody in the movie is good, but Knott's, man, poor showing for you, Knott's. You got to step your game up. You killed a girl in act one? Goddamn. 
I'm gonna all right, so then I'm gonna piggyback on that one. Borden's memory. What are you talking about? You don't remember which knot you tied. Um, I have a rant on this, so I guess I'm just gonna cut into it now because this was my uh what's the worst thing that you can say? Remember, he doesn't remember because he might not have been the one to tie it. Well, that's because I wrote down, unless there's some sort of thematic points that I've just missed, him saying that he can't remember just seems like lazy storytelling to me. It's to suggest that he is not the Borden that tied that knot. So the reason Borden figures out why the Chinese magician is pretending is because he is already deep into his double life. He's already set that up. And that's why he, he's like, I know how he does it because I'm doing the same thing. So even early on in that movie, he's already splitting time. That's why the Borden at the funeral is not the Borden that tied the knot. Okay, but, uh, okay. But then bah, now, bah. no, all right, all right. Okay, okay. I, I can't believe I've never put that together, man. Fuck. Um, but that's still just, that, that's a whole new can of worms. Like then why would the other one show up at all? If he didn't feel guilt about it, like why would he be there knowing that it would just stir up shit? You know, like I don't know. That's that's a good question. Perhaps he had like a long grocery list that day. I don't know. So I guess that so well, then that's not mine because you've just I'm actually super stoked that I now know that. Uh, because I did not before. Well, this is what we do, man. We dig into the movies, we analyze, we look at it, we bring different perspectives, and uh we also look up plot synopsis. <laughs> All right, well, then that makes sense, Eric. I think clearing up that con- confusion for a lot of viewers will help everybody. That's what we do here at Post Credit Pod. We help. Viewers, it may just be my dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one, this is the near and dear to my heart award, and that is the David Bowie Award for the best David Bowie in this movie. I mean, this one was a real nail-biter, bro. Like, I don't know if you know this, but it was tough to pick the best David Bowie, but if I had to choose gun to head, I'd probably go with David Bowie. It's such a great piece of stunt casting. It really is. He's so good in this. And the best part about the stunt casting, and for those that are just completely lost on what we're talking about, David Bowie, almost unrecognizable, plays Nikola Tesla in The Prestige, which I did not know until like the third or fourth time I watched the movie. I was like, holy crap, I think that's David Bowie. Looked it up, that is David Bowie. But the best part about that stunt casting is Christopher Nolan was apparently dead set on only getting David Bowie for that role and was <laughs> like about to cause a problem if anyone else was going to play him. Wow, that's good. to be, Dude, because <laughs> he, he's been in films before, right? But it, it had been some time, I think, no? I mean, listen, I think his biggest movie role is still Labyrinth. Like, yeah. I don't know what he did between Labyrinth and this. But like, wow, what a jump, my man. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he's great in this. God, God rest. I mean, he was, are his eyes really like that? I have no idea. I, I, I'm not like a big music guy, so I'm probably the last person to ask on David Bowie's eyes. But you know, I, didn't, uh, I, I didn't know that that was him until I was like grown man as well. Yeah, right. I mean, he, he's completely unrecognizable. As a kid, I mean, well, kid, quote unquote, teenager. Uh, you know, you're probably not, not going to know that. First time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. Second time, I was asked politely to retire. <laughs> so here I am, enjoying my retirement. 
Nothing is impossible, Mr. Angio. What you want is simply expensive. If I were to build for you this machine, you would be presenting it merely as illusion? Well, if people actually believe the things I did on stage, they wouldn't clap and scream. I mean, think of sawing a woman in half. Mr. Angio, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know, but again, that's what we're here for, man. Post-credit pod, pointing out things that you didn't know you needed. And now you do. Now, these two obviously dueling magicians at the same time. If you had to go back in time and you were living in the 1800s, which show would you buy a ticket to, Borden or Angier? So it totally depends on what vibe you're on. Uh, the Great Danton seems like a fancy show that you take your, your wife to you know, on like a night out on the town where Borden seems like, you know, a place that you stumble into at the end of the night when you're out with your boys and, and you see a sign like magic show and you're like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Let's check out this show. And like, he's shooting his hand off and stuff. So it kind of depends on what vibe you're on. Well, remember uh, by the end of the movie, Borden's got that fancy goatee and he's like the original transporting man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, no, no. I don't forget his his pub days. To me, that's the real Borden. The grimy floors, the gross fingers, the 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 just the ratchet act with his crusty twin in the corner. <laughs> See, on this show, we like to remind audiences, because this was kind of originated in our friendship before we started started having a podcast you kind of assume more of like that fan perspective i'm more the snobby critic i feel like this is what it comes down to too like am i trying to go to the dive bar am i trying to go to the theater with my my coattails and my penguins exactly so if i'm going on a date i'm going to the great danton if i'm out with the boys we're going to get drunk as hell at a boarding show i don't even know what his name was at that time it was just like some some chubby guy doing magic in a basement like both of these guys, Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, in character, you know, they're famous actors with traditional Hollywood, like leading men, good looks. But if I'm me and I'm in the 1800s and I'm talking to my girl, I'm like, hey, babe, what do you want to do tonight? Like, I assume she's probably going to go with Angier, a.k.a. Hugh Jackman, which means I got to buy those tickets if I want to make my girl happy. Yep. No disrespect to Christian Bale, though. I don't want him to find us and beat us up because he went full method or something. Hmm. <laughs> Yo, he still has that weight on, on him, too, from uh, Batman. So he's, like, thick in this movie. And you can tell that they're trying to hide it because he's... He he, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, you talked about this a little bit before, but what is your Rewind That Real Quick award? And this is something, and it could be a plot point, it could be a line, it could be a reveal or a specific shot that you just got to go, hey, hey, wait, wait, I'll go back. I want to see that again, whether you liked it or it didn't make sense, whatever reason. For me, it's the ending. It's the reveal of Fallon being a twin. You've got Michael Caine doing his speech, uh, which they had started the film with, and then it said during during the film about the first act is the turn, blah, blah, blah. Um, th there, there is this certain group of films that I love that are like Fight Club and The Sixth Sense and Shutter Island, where, uh, where once you see the twist, the film is never the same. Now, this has all the parts of being that sort of same film. But despite that, I don't think knowing the twist ruins the enjoyment of the film. And I think that's because of the way that it, A, it's saved for the absolute last scene, which usually with twists, you know, outside of perhaps the 
usual suspects, they reveal, you know, some halfway through the third act. And then there's some stuff to follow, the fallout of knowing said twist. Here, it's the last scene. And that's what you're left with. Um, And I just think it just works. I enjoyed it then. I enjoyed it now. The first time I saw it, I was genuinely surprised, despite how bad Fallon looks. Um, I think the way that Bale and Jackman face off and sort of not confess, but sort of have a, and not really a heart to heart, but the, the, the war is done. Um, And they're sort of finally showing not the obsessive side of their life, but the human side and what they each had to give up um, and how much it cost them. And again, they're both A-listers. So it's two heavyweights trading absolute bangers of, of line. You never understood why we did lose. The audience knows the truth. The world is simple, miserable, solid all the way through. But if you could fool them, even for a second, then you can make them wonder. And you got to see something very special. You really don't know. It was... It was the look on their faces. Bale explaining how hard it was to share a life. Um, Jackman talking about the courage it took each night, which this ties into my larger point is the ending, but then specifically the reveal that Jackman had been killing himself every show. I remember was like, fucked me up. Like just absolutely blew my mind to pieces. There was a lot of drowned and cheers in that warehouse. Which is so dark. Like I can't even describe. And then like, Michael Caine flipping that drowning thing on him where he's like, Oh no, I lied. It's agony. Like, so Agger. yeah. So the end, so the ending, so the ending to me finding out both of the twists, both Angier's and Borden's the way that it's acted, uh, the, the cut to black, the voiceover speech, it's all a home run for me. Yeah. That last season really brings to a head the theme and idea that obsession leads to tragedy. And in this story, absolutely no one wins. You know, you either lose or you get out scathed, but still intact. But it's not my choice. And the only reason I say that is because first time I see this movie, Piper, again, forgetting her last name, I do apologize, but Angier's first wife, she's drowning. Michael Caine's hacking away at the box. And you're like, oh my God, this is horrible. I'm so sad because I've grown to like this relationship. Second time you see it, you're like, okay, we know this is the catalyst that sets everything in motion. This time I see it, why the hell is 85-year-old Michael Caine the one with the axe trying to get her out? You have two Hollywood leading men who are in the prime of like their physical fitness. I understand it's an illusion, but at that point, I think we've gone beyond like suspension of disbelief. It's okay if the audience knows you're in on it. 
to save this woman's life. And yet they're like, Michael Caine, can you please swing it harder, man? And he's like, oh, I'm about to die because I'm 75. I think that's, that's just unintentionally point. hilarious to me. That's a good point. But to be fair, in, in that sort of rush, your brain is probably in shock. He's just, you know, so I hear your point, but I, I don't fault them for not being like as on their toes as they should have been. Believe me, that's a more nitpicky answer. That also, just on 15th rewatch was unintentionally hilarious. Why, why such thick glass? The yeah, I mean, of, really. Yeah, or so. like, why such a dull axe? <laughs> I think there's a conspiracy within the conspiracy <laughs> going on right now. That, that's wow. going to be the prestige too. Yep. Now, this is a movie that I think we have firmly established that you and I both really like. But if forced to, what is the worst thing you can say about the prestige? So I said mine already, which you since fixed. I didn't understand how they got away with Bale saying or Borden saying that he didn't know which knot he tied, uh, which I now get. Um, so outside of that, nothing. This is a great. This is this is a great, great movie, from casting to writing to costuming, direction, score, everything. It's a great movie. Period. The end. If I had to choose something, it's something we've already touched on, is that I can understand, even if I don't agree with, why some believe that the final reveal didn't live up to the expansive, complicated, and very intricate buildup we had been sitting through for an hour and a half, and that that is, Borden is just a twin. And I think after someone invents a cloning machine and uses it for- but Isn't magic, that the thematic point of the film that, you could be blinded by your obsession. And throughout the entire film, everyone around Angier is telling him, it's not, that, it's not that much. It's just a twin. Or they're just telling him to just give it up, except that there's not more to it. They, oh, I agree completely. And oh, I, okay. I think it's a phenomenal ending. I love yeah. it. But okay. if I had to say the most negative thing, it's that I can understand why some fans would feel a little deflated after that. I don't agree. I agree with everything you just said, because that's exactly right. And I think it's a subtle jab that drives the point home. And like you said, hiding in plain sight is often the most clever of kind of conclusions you can do. But I can understand after an hour and a half and so many, you know, time jumps and so much like, okay, wait, which timeline are we in? Whose journal is he reading? Him being like, oh, well, you know, okay. Just to go back one, to rewind, to rewind that real quick. When they each write notes to each other via their own journals, fuego. <laughs> that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> it's a cool framing device that still to this day elicits like a, hey, gotcha for yep, me. Yep. I really like that. I hope to do that to somebody one day. I don't know how I could ever in a real tense situation do that, but I would love to do that. So those are the, if forced to decide on one, worst things we could say. What's the best thing you can say about the prestige? Because we have said a lot of nice things so far. So not even outside of the three Dark Knight films. I think except for the Dark Knight, just the Dark Knight, this is probably my favorite Nolan film. Um, we've just talked about why we love it so much. Um, as you said, and then as I said, it sort of took place in this space where Nolan was blowing up, but still sort of in his roots. Um, it had all of his flares, but Nolan before, as you like to say, he became sort of this grandiose Artur. And there's something very throwback about that almost. 
to a time when those films could get made. He still is allowed. Like, could Nolan? Would they? Would they even let him make a film this small today? He can do whatever he wants today. But if you're talking about a director who may have been, who may be on a comparable point at their career as Nolan was back then when he made The Prestige, it'd be a lot harder to get off the ground. Yeah. So I just think, you know, outside of The Dark Knight, it's his best film. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. And kind of speaking to it being a throwback, I have mentioned this on the pod before, but The Prestige features 146 time jumps throughout the entire movie, which is just about one time jump per minute. And yet you can still follow the narrative structure. And that requires a very, very carefully constructed script and very clear directions that marks as signposts and indicators for the audience to know when and where and who they are with at any given time. And those are kind of the elements and and foundational tenets, hey there, of Christopher Nolan's bombastic style that I enjoy most, that he can boil down and synthesize these massively complex, intricate webs of story into something digestible, entertaining, and compelling. And I love that. And I wish we could return to something that's a little bit more small, small scale, like the prestige that still contains these amazingly cool structural narrative elements that make it such a joy to puzzle out for yourself. Now you do have to do a lot of puzzling in Nolan's films. That is both a probably a pro and a con, depending on who you ask. In The Prestige, we've touched on a lot of them. What was the biggest mind fuck of every single reveal that we get? Yeah, so I touched on this when they reveal that Angier had been killing himself every night. It's heavy. That is just so dark. You you don't see it coming until they reveal it. which is not till the end, you know, he, he buys it, he brings it home, he goes into it, but then they, they, they don't show what's to come until the ending where they reveal that a carbon copy of himself pops out and he shoots him dead right there. And then after getting over the trauma of that, decides to himself, I'm going to keep doing that shit, which is, which is just, <laughs> which is just insane. That so, and then that final shot of his like, of his like wide-eyed corpse in the fucking box—it's—it's it, it, it's Nolan at his darkest, sort of. Um, and as I said, it—it's it, a huge twist, but it's not one of those twists that therefore ruins the entire film, which is a very tough line to walk. Yeah, I'm actually on this different side of the same coin with you. I think the first time he uses the machine, the first time he kills a Hugh Jackman clone is one of the best scenes in the entire movie. Not only does it essentially establish the stakes for who he is and what he's prepared to do, given the obsession, not only does it raise so many cool questions for the rest of the movie, like, okay, wait, which Jackman was which? Is the original dead? Who's the one in the box? Who's the one getting the prestige? But it's also unintentionally hilarious once again. And I don't mean to undercut the seriousness and the drama that we've been talking about, because I think those two scenes, the first two Jackman clone and the reveal at the end that he's done this 60, 70 times, man, it's dark, it's heavy, it's, it's beautiful in a horribly tragic way, and it questions life. But my favorite thing is this, in the 1800s, they invent a cloning machine. <laughs> instead of using it for national defense, or humanitarian or medical purposes or, or making endless $100 bills at the time. They use it for fucking magic, man. <laughs> Movie takes place in London in the 1800s, a time when London became 
the world's largest city. The first stock exchange was founded. Commerce exploded on a global scale. And these nerds use the single greatest scientific achievement in history to play, basically play Dungeons and Dragons with each other. Now, Eric, that is like if you and I stole the talent of NBA players like Space Jam only to become the most athletic podcasters in history. That is, uh, Brandon, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that. What are they doing? Dude, just give up the magic. What's the matter with you? Go be rich with your incredible machine. It's crazy. Also, I think it is cool to bring it back to a more serious note. I think my first reaction as a human being and who I am would be like, like, who are you? Like, I'm, I'm me. Like, who are you? Like, to talk. His first reaction without a word said is like, I'm going to shoot this motherfucker. He has to. No, but that's smart of him. He has to. You have no You have no choice. If it's to be an identical carbon copy clone of you, like, you have a problem. Well, th- see, this is where the philosophical debate comes in, which is why it's fascinating. If my reaction, Brandon Katz's reaction, is you know what, I'm going to talk to him. That means my carbon clone, who is exactly like me, that's his first reaction too. Yours is to shoot him, which means you definitely got to shoot him because the other one's thinking about shooting you. I'm only saying that as somebody who would have planned out cloning myself. Like if I happen to walk into myself in the street, the first, like I'm not going to shoot myself. But if I'm the one who's like, all right, I'm going to clone myself. I lay all the pros and, and cons out. Roadmap sort of which way this could go. What if the clone thinks that he's the real you? Then we got problems. Then we got to start. you've got a fucking problem. You can, you, so I. Who's to say he's not the real you if he's an identical clone? Exactly, exactly. So while it is horrific, I, I would totally dead him first thing as well. I have to, you have to. But that said, that would shake me to my core. I would burn the machine down. I would be done with that. So he's a nut job for then continuing to do it. It just seems also too, and this is a complete random aside, the entire movie, Tesla's having trouble with Edison and Edison's men come to mess up his workshop and drive him out of town, correct? Yeah. You just invented a cloning machine. I think you might have the upper hand in that conflict, buddy. Yeah. I think you just kind of got the trump card, like when Daenerys hatches her dragons. Yep, very true. But he's just like, no, nah, I'm going to give it to this magician and bounce. But, yeah, because he wanted no part of it, because he knew. Yeah, at the end of the day, he was more self-aware and understanding of kind of life's truths than anybody else. Yeah. Except maybe perhaps Michael Caine on a more human level, because clearly Tesla was operating way above everybody else. Yep, yep. Now, this movie is essentially boils down to a rivalry between these two men. And yet never, not once, do they ever just throw down with pure fisticuffs. It's always trickery and cunning and manipulation. Why don't they just, you know, hey, let's take this outside, buddy. And if they did, who are you betting on in a fight between Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale? So, all right. The first key is what weight class? Bale needs to be in his Batman weight. They're in the weight class that they are in this movie. And I've, I've done some measurements and whatnot. I don't like that. I would rather we do, why not do Bale at peak Batman weight and Jackman at peak Logan weight? I mean, because that's not Angier versus Borden, but if you're- if oh, you so it's the characters. Wait, so, so it's the characters then? It's the characters, but the characters are, you know, still physically not- they, they can't do something that yes, they're- but in this case, do. Angier is the nut job where in real life, Bale is. So like while but Borden was also kind of nutty, he split his life with his twin. 
Like that's a, right, that's a right. unhinged thing to do. All right. So I think when it comes down to just characters, this is easy. It's clearly Angier. But I think when it's the actors, it's a little more complex because even if they're both ripped and huge, Bale is like the wild card. Like he'll like bite your ear off or some shit, you know? So I think if I had to p- pick the real life guys, I would take, actually, I guess I would take Jackman in the film, but in real life, I'd take Bale because. Jackman's probably too nice, and Bale I, is just the type of guy who would bring a knife to a fistfight. Now, according to the internet, which, as we all know, is the most accurate and reliable place in the world, of course, around the time of this filming, Hugh Jackman, 6'2", about 205 pounds. Christian Bale, beefing up for the Dark Knight, was about, he's six foot and was around 210 pounds coming off Batman Begins leading into Dark Knight, which means Jackman's got the reach. Bale's got a little bit of poundage on him. Oh, Bale is taller than I thought. No, no, no. Jackman's taller than Bale. Well, yeah, no, but... I mean, this is also, remember, the accuracy of the internet, which, of course, is unquestioned. Right, right, right. But, I, so I think... I'm going Hugh Jackman because I'm, I've always been a guy who likes reach. I used to box and I got some lanky arms and that was always a very useful kind of tool, even against bigger stockier guys. So I'm going with the reach. I also think what you said within the confines of this movie, Borden's messed up, but Angier's completely unhinged. I mean, he takes the rivalry to the next level and is like, you got my daughter, Angier. And so like, he's going next level, elevating this to like a, a place it does not need to go. So you're right. <laughs> I'm going with Angier because that dude is just straight up freaking crazy. Yep, yep. Now to kind of tie a bow on this whole prestige conversation, which I think we pointed out a lot of similarities and a lot of differences to the filmmaker Nolan has become today. Is there anything special or cool or unique that you think is worth mentioning that our viewers at home might not know? So I've got one here, but, but it's more of like a fun fact. This is a twin film. Do you know what a twin film is? You're talking about Edward Norton's The Illusionist. Yep. So twin films are this, like it, it happened in like the 90s with uh, Deep Impact and uh, Armageddon. Armageddon. It happened here. There was no strings attached and friends with benefits. And there's a few more, but it's this weird thing that two films that are kind of the same come out at the exact same time. And this is one. Um, I haven't seen... So the Illusionist with Edward Norton, Jessica Peele, uh, Paul Giamatti. Very good film, in my opinion. I've never seen that, but yeah. We're twin, worth watching. Twin films are weird. Twin films are cool. I like that. We should do a pod where we take some of the most famous twin films and like, okay, which one's better? Which one's right, better? Yeah, yeah. It's a good idea. The Illusionist is really solid, man. Good kind of mystery, whodunit type of thing. Okay. Highly recommend. Now, my fun fact as well, Sam Mendes was originally going to direct this film, Hot Off of American Beauty, and the author of the prestige book, because he was selling the rights, Christopher Priest, was very interested and close to closing the deal with Mendes when someone sent him Nolan's Following, which is his feature directorial debut, and which is also kind of unfurls in this non-linear manner and the author was so blown away and impressed that he went with the no-name director because Memento had yet to come out and kind of sold him the rights instead so I just thought that was a really cool fun fact and now like years later I would love to see Sam Mendes's version of The Prestige and just compare both them if you really talk about twin films yeah interesting I did not know that when did he sell set rights the 90s I believe this is like you know 2000 early 90s early 2000s ish 
Because what did he do between Batman Begins and uh, oh right, uh, Insomnia got him. Insomnia. Batman yeah, interesting. Interesting. Some fun facts. Chew on that, audience. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for us in terms of the prestige and catching up with Tenet. If you want more, follow us at PostCredPod on Twitter. You can also check out our writing. Eric's at GrowBible.com. I'm at Observer.com. And if you like this kind of Tenet, Christopher Nolan retrospective talk, be sure to tune into our next episode when we are diving into arguably his magnum opus, The Dark Knight. Yep, I cannot wait. I know you one. can't wait. I don't even think I need to re-watch it to prepare. You mean it's not etched into your brain or tattooed onto your body? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty much. All right, see you next time. I'm going to make him an offer, Captain. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. <laughs>